This is a Federal News Network podcast. It may not be the biggest military challenge the Pentagon faces, but the Navy is taking on an issue that affects the productivity of its sailors and civilians, namely how to keep security programs on PCs and other endpoints from dragging down performance to where it becomes a frustration. That's among the developments in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. And before we get to that story, Scott Mossioni, I wanted to ask you about reporting you're doing on the Air Force and its multi-domain warfare officers. There's not very many of them, and they're going to cease to exist, but only in a way. That's right. There's only about 136 of them, so it's a pretty small specialty within the Air Force. Well, what they're doing is they're phasing this out completely, but that doesn't mean it's going to be gone. The Air Force wants everyone to be trained in some sort of multi-domain experience and knowledge. And the reason for that is because they think that war in the future is going to be multi-domain centric. That means it could be a mixture of land, air, sea, space, or cyber. And we have really seen that cyber and space are things that impact and affect a lot of what our service members use when they're uh, out in the field. Uh, One of the most anticipated programs within DOD is the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Program, which merges domains and joint forces so they can work more seamlessly using data. Think of, you know, how... Uber today can deliver things by using data and get you somewhere with with UPS and give you the times you need. So you would know when your airstrike is coming in because the space and cyber are working together with the air. The Air Force is specifically in charge of the advanced battle management system aspect of that, which uh, shares that information to enable those technologies like artificial intelligence. So as all these airmen are going to be using things like Joint All-Domain Command and Control and ABMS, the Advanced Battle Management System, they need to know more about multi-domain operations. And that's what the Air Force is going to be doing is making that part of their base training. Right. So this is not just an IT gambit to merge networks, but they want people to be able to understand all of these domains. And I guess you have to look no further than the Ukraine and what's going on there to see the multi-domain aspect of air, land, I don't know about sea, sea also, and of course, cyberspace. That's exactly right. And, you know, the Space Force has already billed itself as the first digital force, and they want all of their people to be conversant in coding, in uh, you know understanding the internet, media literacy, and digital literacy. And so they are also understanding the need for this multi-domain, especially the cyber aspect of things, because they are going to be working in space and cyber uh, as guardians. And this goes way up high in the Air Force brass. I mean, you're quoting the Air Force chief of staff, no less, who's behind this. So this is really a kind of a profound change for the Air Force. That's right. Well, it works really into the doctrine that they are trying to, to work through at this point and changing from just being the Air Force that someone calls in and drops a bomb or, you know, a B-52 bomber going and, and dropping something to some a service that works in tandem with the Army, the Space Force, the Navy, and everyone else. And Scott, switching gears here, I'm looking at your story also in today's DOD's Reporter's Notebook, and that is the largest federal union 
is trying to undo what you're reporting as decades of personnel caps that have been imposed by Congress on different elements of the civilian workforce in DOD. Tell us what the latest gambit there is. Yeah, every few years, Congress gets uh, upset about all the red tape and bureaucracy within DOD, and at some points, rightfully so. In the past, they've put these across-the-board cuts, sometimes as much as 25% of staff reductions uh, uh, across DOD. And now then DOD has to follow these orders. And what ends up happening is they sort of take a butcher's knife instead of a scalpel in cutting these headquarters staff. DOD said it saved close to a billion dollars over the years, or at least it would hope to do that. We haven't really seen any reports saying it specifically saved anything at this point. However, the cost of it may not be exactly what the DOD was bargaining for. Uh, Tim Kaine, who's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Readiness Subcommittee, said that the housing crisis that military service members went through was largely due to these cuts because they ended up using that butcher's knife to cut the people that were supposed to be overseeing the mil- the military housing. So AFGE is is really just asking that DOD maybe rethink these cuts, may- maybe stop some of them, and uh, really not DOD, but Congress in their next NDAA for 2023. And the issue for the union is that they point out often the mission doesn't go away, even if the people do, and therefore the spending on contractors rises concomitantly with the reduction in staff spending? That's exactly right. You're not 1,000% sure that you're actually going to be saving money at all, but just relying more on private industry who may not be as experienced or may just cost more to come in and do the work that the full-time employees or service members would have done in the first place. All right. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu, we go back to the top here on this Fix Our Computers thread that you're reporting that the Navy is reacting to. what What's this all about? Yeah, Tom, that thread was interesting. I mean, complaints about the state of DOD user experience on, on computers are, are certainly not new, but every once in a while, something like this really will take off on social media. In this case, it really did on LinkedIn and on Twitter to such an extent that it actually prompted an official response from the DOD CIO and the CIOs of all the military services. They didn't have super detailed answers on what they were going to do to solve the problem, but, you know, at least they responded. The Navy in particular, though, as I wrote about in the notebook this week, really does have some concrete plans to get after the user experience problems. And I I think one of the most potentially impactful things they're going to start looking at in the near term is just reduce the number of security software uh, programs that are running on every single endpoint across the Navy Marine Corps intranet. Part of the problem they've identified is that those third-party security scanners are working at cross-purposes, essentially, so that all of the computer's resources in terms of hard disk, memory, CPU, are being spent on security scans so that you can actually do your work. You cannot open that Excel spreadsheet. You cannot open Outlook, or it takes an hour to do so. So that's one of the near-term things that they really are looking toward. Reduce that third-party software. Rely on the built-in security features of Windows 10 itself to a much larger degree. And then, of course, as DOD as a whole moves toward this whole zero trust notion, it probably becomes less important to do so much endpoint scanning in the first place, since you are assuming intrusion at all times anyway, and you're focused on securing the data rather than obsessively scanning every single endpoint 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's interesting that this phenomenon would come up because that is the same type of thing that happened in the 80s and early 90s with the advent of widespread use of PCs on lands, McAfee and Norton and all of these utilities people would put on 
themselves acted almost like viruses in the computers and right. slowed them down to the point where they became non-functional. So kind of interesting to hear that's still happening. Is, for the Navy, are they looking at PCs as well as mobile devices that run iOS and Android? Yeah, it's it's largely desktops and laptops where most of this security software is, has, has become such a large problem. Part of it is age. I'm not sure age of the actual machines is as much an issue, but they are going to try and get after that problem, too. As you'll recall, one of the things the Navy has done over the past couple of years is transition to a new generation of its next-generation enterprise network contracts. One of those contracts is actually to procure, and it, procure is probably even the wrong word, but obtain desktops and laptops almost as a service so that they are owned by the third-party vendor, which should get them into a much more frequent refresh cycle for getting new desktops and laptops into the hands of users, something more like every three years instead of the current five-year refresh cycle. So that should go some way toward improving the user experience as well. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Earlier, we heard from Scott Mossione. Check out their DOD Reporter's Notebook, now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.